It's time for Making It Personal, a personalized SC podcast. Let's jump into today's episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Making It Personal podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Fersner, and today I am joined by a very special guest. Her name is April, and she is a teacher, and I will allow her to introduce herself to you all right now. Hello, everyone. My name is April Murphy. Um, I live in Somerville, South Carolina. I'm a second grade teacher at Cane Bay Elementary uh, in Berkeley County School District. Awesome. So the first thing I want to ask you is in regards to personalized learning, how did you first discover this concept? And um, being a teacher, how, were you always teaching this way? Um, just kind of talk, talk us through how you got started. Okay, so about a little over a year ago, I went to a district um, professional development session, and that's where I was really introduced more so to what personalized learning can really mean um, in the classroom. I also attended a cohort um, for personalized learning that was um, with the Office of Personalized Learning in South Carolina. Um, generally, uh, I was teaching whole group instruction to the middle of my class before I started my personalized learning journey. Um, I taught the I can statement and that was it kind of thing um, until I realized I really needed to utilize um, the progressions of how do you get to that I can statement? Um, what is the prior knowledge required for this I can statement? How can I push those students um, that already understand that I can statement and not hold them hostage um, and let them extend their knowledge and using what uh, kids um, see in everyday life, using that more in their learning. Well, that sounds very exciting. And I'm, I'm sure that you have learned so much along the way as you've been just trying things out. Um, so why do you feel like you're passionate about personalized learning? Why, why is that something that is important? Or why, why should people care? Why is this something that we should talk about? So um, the biggest reason is personalized learning puts equity in education. Um, not only does it help uh, give students an equal opportunity for success, but it gives students personalized tools for achieving the same outcome. Um, personalized learning helps students have a growth mindset and it encourages student ownership. Um, personalized learning meets students where they are. Um, and that is so important in their learning. Uh, there is no more holding kids hostage, um, as I mentioned before. Uh, personalized learning involves using data to drive instruction, which is something that um, before I wasn't using as much. I was giving them a pre-assessment, um, but I wasn't using that data in real time um, to drive instruction. Uh, I think one of the most powerful components of personalized learning is using data to drive the instruction and letting students choose how they would like to demonstrate that mastery. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. That's the biggest shift I have made um, is from telling them, okay, this is the test and that's it. Um, and moving from that to how would you like to demonstrate mastery? At first, at the beginning of the school year, I may give them um, options. And then as they understand what that means to have any way you would like to demonstrate mastery, um, then they can come up with their own ideas and get that approved. Um, 
And then student voice and choice, that's what makes it engaging. Um, students being aware of success criteria, student uh, goal setting, and then at the end, the reflection of those goals, um, it puts them in charge of their own learning. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I really love everything that you said just now, and you just really did a, th- a thorough job of just breaking down like what personalized learning could look like. So my next question for you is, I know for me, when I was a teacher and when I was just starting out on my personalized learning journey, um, I decided that my entry point would be to begin with creating a shared vision for my students, to establish um, a class vision of sorts, and then to articulate to my students this new shift in our learning environment that was coming. And that's kind of how I first got my foot in the door with, with personalized learning. I also started with pathways. But my question to you is, when you first started, where did you start? Because I think that's a question that a lot of people have. And they can sometimes become overwhelmed because there are so many entry points. So could you share with us where you actually started? So for me, I felt like the easiest way to start would be um, I used flexible um, and a flexible environment. So for example, not just flexible seating, um, but where and when you can learn. So for example, I had um, their assignments available to them um, at home as well as in the classroom. Um, if they missed a class, that doesn't mean that they missed that day. That means they can finish um, or they can continue working that with that weekend. Um, and so the biggest thing for me was flexibility with when and where. And then I moved towards the learner profile. So um, you can't teach a child as well effectively if you don't know who they are. Um, so I got to know the children, I gave them surveys, um, and I just had conversations with them and I found out what engages them, what interests them. And that's what I used to, um, create, uh, more real world problems. And I use things that they enjoy doing. Um, and I tried to expand on that to give them, um, real world experiences with many different standards. For example, um, I think one of my very first projects, it was actually like more of like a project-based learning project, but I used Mm -hmm. it. um, I came up with it by using their profiles as a learner. So this integrated English, writing, math, and actually social studies. I had them actually um, come up with, they had to invent a product, any product they wanted to. um, They had to come up with that and then they had to come up with an ad to um, try to get someone to buy it. They had to persuade their audience um, to buy it, which their audience here would have been their classmates. And their job was to create an ad and then they had pretend money and they um, came up with a price for their product, but they were all given the same amount of money. And then um, they had to buy and sell from one another. And so they they learned supply and demand. They learned how to manage money with addition and subtraction. They learned um, how to persuade their audience all within one project. Mm -hmm. And I used that because they, they expressed that they loved specifically money. As far as math goes, that's what they like to do. A lot of my students, and they said they like to create things. So they created a project as well. And then they got to um, talk with one another and use that collaborative effort as well as collaborating with not only their group, but with other groups. 
And actually that encompasses also SEL, um, being able to have those types of conversations that, you know, maybe the person doesn't want to give you $100 for that product, but they will barter with you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was really cool to see. Now you are a second grade teacher. And so some of your answers, um, some of what you explained just now, um, is kind of leading into my next question. Overall, how would you say it looks like for a second grader to take charge of their own learning? Because in this world of personalized learning, sometimes we hear, you know, we hear middle school teachers saying, I've never seen that happen in elementary school or um, elementary teachers saying, well, I wonder what that looks like at the high school level. And, you know, there's a lot of question as far as like what that actually looks like. But for a second grade student to take charge of their own learning, what does that look like? Honestly, and it's so crazy. I've heard that so many times about what does it look like at my level? Well, I think it looks pretty similar um, at any level, um, as long as you have like the, what I call the meat and potatoes. Um, okay. So potatoes, <laughs> I would say. Um, well, I'm kind of nerdy, so I have like a standard algorithm to this a little bit, um, and I can share with you what that is, um, okay. what my students do. Um, so first, unpacking the standards. So if you haven't um, unpacked standards on your own yet, that would typically be the teacher's first step, um, or unpack it, unpack it with your group, um, your teacher group. Um, so... But after you've done that, the first step for a second grader is to unpack the standards with the teacher um, to, and so that they understand the success criteria. Um, if they don't understand what they're learning or why they're learning it, um, then they won't be as successful. Um, so first they unpacked that standard as a class and then they would take a pretest. So um, and then they use the pretest data um, what they, you know, they use the pretest to then set their goal for the standard. Mm -hmm. So once they understand the criteria, they understand the test, they get a better grasp of, okay, this is what I'm being asked to do. Then they can set that goal. Um, and after they've set their goal, um, then they use their pretest to choose an emerging developing or demonstrating level. Mm -hmm. Um, and within each level, Second graders are very capable of knowing how to go to those levels once you've taught them those um, basic standards, um, procedures, um, routines at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and each level has an activator, a mini lesson, guided practice, check for understanding, um, and the demonstration of understanding, which is that independent practice. So they're getting all the things that we already do. Um, they're just getting it, they're getting it at their own level. Um, using that data to put them where we feel like they need to be. And what's also important to add is so for second graders, I feel like it's really important to have those checkpoints after each level, which really is good for all students. Um, uh, having a checkpoint and then the students will sign up for a meeting with their teacher um, if they do not demonstrate the mastery um, of that specific level. Because once they demonstrate mastery, they can move on. Um, to the next level. However, if they do not, they need to have another mini lesson and, you know, have another go at it a different way um, the second time around. And then once students demonstrate mastery of the demonstrating level, um, then they meet with their teacher or me in this case, um, and they get their uh, post-test approved. So that's just basically having a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is what 
you know your success criteria. How do you want to how do you want to do this? Um, oftentimes they pick, uh, they really enjoy second graders or at least mine really enjoy creating things. And that's wonderful for me because it's at the top of blooms. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, anytime you want to, you know, create something that's awesome, but we do have to have a rubric, um, and use the success criteria to make sure you've achieved that mastery. Um, and then, um, so for second graders, I like to, which again, this could be used for any level. I like to have them um, all complete a Google form test after they've demonstrated mastery um, to use for a very, just another data point to have. Um, so they all do that, but then they are allowed to demonstrate mastery however they would like. Once they do that open response, and that's very important, an open response um, hmm. Google form test. Um, then students reflect back, on their, reflect back on their goal, and then the students move on to extend their knowledge. Um, they can choose an inquiry station, which I am obsessed with, um, or a passion project um, that they'd like to work on while they're waiting. You know, um, as the week goes on, they can still extend their knowledge while their peers may be moving through those progressions. So I think one of the main themes that I heard jump out to me from what you said was transparency and mm -hmm. just making learning transparent for students. Because I know, you know, when I was coming up in school, when many people were coming up in school, it was really just, you know, you come in, you know, you need to do your work, do these problems, take this test. And that's it. Like you said, we're just moving on. But this, um, this way of, of, of structuring the learning, it really does make things super transparent for students. And I, and I think that's something that students can resonate with and it makes their desire to want to learn even more enhanced. So I really like that. And you mentioned that um, when they take their assessments, you have open-ended um, assessments. And you said that that was really important. Can you speak on maybe why that's important? So that's important um, for many reasons, but um, specifically um, for, so for example, math is going to look differently than a reading assessment would in that I could give every single student the same question and they could all solve it in a different way. And I can tell by the strategy um, that they use uh, to solve that problem, what their level of understanding may be. Um, so um, that's why it's so important to have that open response because they're, they're thinking, showing their thinking, um, and not necessarily, necessarily their work. Um, mm -hmm. that is what I'm interested in. That is what shows me where their mind is, um, as far as their understanding goes. And, um, as for reading, um, having those open-ended responses is so important because like I said before, you can tell by how they answer with their own words, or it doesn't even have to be a typing open-ended um, question. Um, they can speak, um, speak to text. They can use that um, to show their thinking instead of always having a written response. That's another, that's another idea I'd like to also um, reiterate is that it doesn't have to, a written response does not have to always happen. It doesn't always have to be handwriting. It can be typed. Um, the kids with the technology we have now, it is so important um, that we don't focus on um, assessing other standards as far as like writing. Did you write in a complete sentence when we're not focusing on that standard for the mastery? Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think that's really important for us to all understand too, is to stick with the actual uh, standard that is being assessed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So right now I want to put a plug in for the personalized SC community. Um, Knowing that April, you just recently hosted um, a teacher talk event um, with one of your colleagues around um, some of the, uh, the learning pathways that you all are developing for your students this year. And so many people tuned in. And honestly, I remember um, telling one of my teammates that like, if the time wasn't limited, like people were still staying on and they wanted to hear more about how you all were designing pathways. So my question is for our listeners who may have not seen, you know, you guys' presentation or may never have heard of pathways or don't even know what pathways are. What are pathways and how are you kind of using them to shape the learning for your students this year? Um, So as far as pathways go, um, when I first heard of pathways, I was like, oh my goodness, that sounds like so much work. You know, what, how am I going to create all these pathways? Like, I don't even know what their pathway should be. So a pathway to organize a pathway, first of all, you have to understand um, what your standard is. Like, what exactly do you need your kids to learn? Um, and also you need to understand what, what do they need to do that success criteria. And once you know that, you can pull, um, you can pull the success criteria to create your pathways. Just for an example, which this can, again, be used with any grade. Um, So for second grade, what we do is for the emerging pathway level, um, that's typically going to be like a kindergarten, kindergarten to first grade. um, I can statement. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when it moves on to the next level of the pathway, which is developing, um, that's typically typically going to be a first grade level of understanding, um, depending on the, the subject. Now that looks differently. The pathway will look very different for math than it does reading. It'll look very different for science and social studies because a lot of that is exploring um, before you get to any instruction. Um, and I can talk about that um, at another time. But um, so the pathways, and once you're in developing, Um, that's like the first grade level. And then whenever it's demonstrating, so since I'm a second grade teacher, that would be a second grade, like your target I can statement. Um, And for whatever grade you teach, that would be where your target is located. And then the, um, the fourth level of the pathway of the progressions, which would be extending um, students knowledge That, so what I do with that is I actually give them um, more of like a third grade um, I can statement or maybe like they have like a project where they use um, their I can statement if it's not at the top of blooms yet. Um, I will go a level up or maybe even at the top of blooms um, or their depth of knowledge um, if if their I can statement isn't aligned to the top to the fourth um, depth of knowledge level then um, I will make it like that. So um, you basically, um, it's basically a progression, a pathway. It's a progression for your students. So you use that data and it's so important to use that pre-assessment data and to align your pre-assessment to your, um, or rather so your pathway to your pre-assessment to be sure that your pre-assessment is targeted and intentional um, so that when you get that 
um, whenever you use the data to um, send a kid to a specific pathway um, or path, um, that that matches, that that makes sense. So that's why it's so important to use the same criteria um, for your pretest as with your progressions or your pathways. Thank you so much for sharing that, April. I think another thing that's really cool about building out learning pathways is that um, as a teacher, a, a teacher knows, you know, the skills that are needed in order for a student to be able to master a certain concept. So um, there are times, you know, where you can be able to pinpoint a specific standard that's in another grade level um, and correlate that or wrap that into, you know, a pathway that you're building out. But then there are times where teachers can just utilize their own expertise and create, you know, those different I can statements in order for students to be able to master prerequisite skills um, and build upon that in order to master the specific concept at hand. So I think there's, uh, there's multiple ways to get around that. And um, our office actually had an opportunity to create a whole module series that is specifically about building learning pathways, about the progressions that you talked about. And if anyone's listening and wants to learn more, I would highly recommend you check that out on our personalized SC community. So an another thing that I wanted to talk about is kind of where we are now. So currently we are in the midst of um, a global pandemic, kind of figuring out what education looks like in the light of COVID-19. So my next question for you is, are you having to kind of revamp or reshape or rethink about your approach to um, conducting your classroom this coming school year? Well, actually, um, personalized learning, it just works so well with um, as far as like a flipped classroom, blended learning. It just works so well um, with um, virtual learning, really. Um, Everything that I've done, I've used a lot of Google applications. So like um, Google Slides, that's how each standard, um, each pathway, um, each standard is on one set of Google Slides for each mm. subject. And links are embedded um, to include collaboration. So you can still have your kids if you're teaching all virtually, or if you're teaching like me, I'm going to have um, kids at home, virtual students, and then I'm also going to have kids in my classroom simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to be using um, Google Meets a lot. And also, so Google Meets, that will be my form of teacher table. Okay. You get to the teacher table or like you need to sign up for a meeting with your teacher. So mm -hmm. what that looks like is they will be directed to a Google form and that will be their sign up. Um, and then that lets me know um, who needs what, when, um, and, what, and what do I need to have prepared for that student. So mm -hmm. I can very quickly see um, by the data and information they give me on their Google form, um, I can use that to know which students to put in which group. So I right. can say, okay, you need to come to group, um, the group at one o'clock because that's the kids that are on the same um, level of thinking so that mm -hmm. I can kind of hopefully reach them um, by using the same strategies. Um, and then also Flipgrid, the collaboration on Flipgrid. I'm going to be using Flipgrid like crazy this year. Jamboard, um, that's another goodie. Um, Padlet, that's another great tool for collaboration and assessments. Um, that you can see 
um, the kids at home can actually interact with the kids across their grade level. Um, like my grade level, we're, we're going to make one flip grid. We're going to make it where everyone in the whole grade level, no matter if they're at home or at the school, they can all collaborate with one another, um, respond to each other. Um, so, and we thought that was really important because mm-hmm. of those kids that, you know, they're at home, but they want to actually talk with their peers and not, um, and not just in the context of they can hear them with the, um, whole group instruction, like for them to actually be able to hear their thoughts so that they can, um, you know, analyze what they hear. So in terms of how you're setting up, um, cause you mentioned just now that you are kind of, you guys are going to more of like a hybrid model where you will have students that are at home and that you'll have some students there. So let mm-hmm. me get this straight. So you are not doing a separate lesson with the students that are there. And then when the new group comes in, you're doing us another separate lesson. What you're doing, is it kind of like you're creating, you're, you're laying out your pathways, which um, are, you know, tools, resources, things that the students can use to obtain mastery. And then are you kind of setting up your classroom to where, when, whether students are in or not, there is like a collaborative, it's like a collaborative workspace type of environment. Is that kind of how you're setting things up? Absolutely. So the same thing that the kids will do at home, that's the same thing that my students will do in class. Um, however, their small group will be, you know, with me mm-hmm. at the same table, whereas um, six feet away. Um, right. <laughs> but the kids at home, they would be streamed in um, whenever the most appropriate small group is for them. Um, and oh, okay. So you're going to host small groups with in-person and hybrid students if that works, if that particular group works best for the student. Absolutely. So, okay. um, yeah, that's, that's my plan. That, that is the plan. Um, some of those plans may change um, depending on, um, you know, availability of the students of at home. Um, but my plan is to treat it as though they're in the classroom, um, and, um, using their pre-assessment data or their quick check, those, um, frequent, um, quick checks to know exactly which small group they belong with, or they may belong with. And I can make that, um, assessment as I'm interacting with them in the small group. Um, but then while I'm having those small, I'm, I'm basically going to do small groups all day, except for, you know, the interactive read alouds that, you know, that'll be whole group. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have found that students, um, they seem to, um, engage in their learning and, um, they seem to, um, learn more and, um, they seem to learn more when they're in a small group. So I don't want to hold anybody hostage and teach to the middle anymore. I want to um, implement personalized learning 100%. I'm going for it. So (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, we'll be right back for our special segment in a few. Hey everyone, welcome back to our special segment that we like to call Making It or Breaking It. So April, um, you can choose whether to share a make, which would be something cool that you've seen or done in the realm of personalized learning, or you can share a break, which would be a barrier, concern, or a struggle that you've encountered on your personalized learning journey, or something that we as educators might need to break in order to give personalized learning a chance for students. 
So which will it be, make or break? Always make. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, So I've heard, and I'm so excited about this. This is actually what, like when you think of like your why, this Mm -hmm. gives me goosebumps whenever I think of teachers that teach this way and it inspires me. Um, So as far as personalized learning goes, um, I've heard of students creating charities and using um, teachers, using the state standards, um, to help the students research and create the charity. Mm. Um, anytime we get students involved in something they care about, which is their community, it right. brings education to life. That is what brings education to life. Um, those real world applications. And I encourage all educators to use what your students are passionate about um, to teach them how the standards can be used in real life. Well, thank you so much, April. I have enjoyed our time together. And the last thing I want to ask you is, um, number one, before I ask you how people can get in touch with you, um, I'm sure that there might be people who um, may want to see a taste of maybe some some pathways that you've designed. So um, if you're willing to share, we'll definitely link that at the bottom of, um, of this podcast episode. But how can people reach out to you or get in touch with you if they want to hear more from you or see kind of how you're progressing in the school year? Oh, I would love that. So um, my email address is murphya at bcsdschools.net. Um, you can reach out to me no matter what um, grade you teach. I would love to hear from everyone. I'd love to collaborate with you guys. If you are saying to yourself, man, I really want to do this, um, but I don't know how to get started. I have like, I have literally a, like a, a bulleted list of steps um, to get started or how I got started, how I got my grade level on board. We have 12, um, 12 wonderful ladies um, on my grade level. And it is something to get 12 people um, to agree on anything. That's right. But I'll tell you what, um, when it comes to knowing that this is, this is what good teaching looks like. This is what's best for our students. Mm -hmm. Um, That is what pulls all educators in and all educators can agree um, that we need equity in education. And, um, and I will be more than happy to help anybody. Um, So email me at murphya at bcsdschools.net. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, we'll be back in a second to close things out. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Making It Personal. Be sure to connect with the Office of Personalized Learning on social media. Tweet us at PersonalizedSC and follow us on Instagram at SCPersonalize. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, share with a friend, and tune in for a brand new episode every month. We'll catch you next time on Making It Personal. See ya!